when you read the book, did you did it make any difference to you about your own end of life plan? Do you think? Uh, it made me think about it. I haven't honestly thought about any of that stuff before. No, no. I think about death though, like uh, you know, quite a bit for the last uh -huh. uh, five or six years. But but uh, I haven't. I'm uh, 37 right now. Yeah. So it's. But I a still think I. You know. And I actually was thinking about it recently because my my grandmother just moved into a care home, so I was kind mm -hmm. of that was on my mind a bit, just mm. before I read the book actually. Mm. She'd been living in the same house for over sixty years, and she just moved into a care home. Wow. She's ninety six. So wow, that was, amazing. That was a little, you know, I'm quite close with her, so I think about right. that too. So she she actually lives in uh, they live in England actually, so not not so far oh, away. Right. My mother's family is from uh, England. From she grew up in Wiltshire, so very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. All right. So you're not just down the road, and you can't just have a conversation with her. No, no. But I went there. I hadn't seen her for three years, and I went there in March to to visit her. This just before she she moved, just about uh, the beginning of the month to the care okay. home. But okay. that was the last time I saw that house. I'd I'd have memories of that house because my oh. mother obviously grew up there. Yeah. You know, she they sixty two years. I think she was living in that same house. Wow, amazing. Yeah. So it's yeah. Gosh. So I have family in uh, Europe, so I I go yeah. there. My my father's family's uh, from my father's family's Dutch, so okay, the, interesting. You know, yeah, they were my parents were both born in Europe, so I was right. Okay, I was, they moved to Canada when they got married, but uh, I was born in Canada. But right. but I go back. My dad moved back to Holland, so he's you know I I visit him there and my oh, grandmother lovely. and stuff. So yeah. Well, if you ever think of coming up to the north of Scotland, let me know. Okay. <laughs> I will. I looked up okay. uh, Fintorn the other day just to see. I know they have. Uh, you can go there for a week, right, and have a yes, look and stuff. Yes, you can stuff. do so that. I, I yeah. might. I might. One day I might do that. Yeah, it's brilliant. The problem it's is, really I'm good. Wiltshire's in the south of England, so it's a little far to go to Scotland. Sometimes I'm not there for that long, but that's one, true. One but day, on the but... other hand, it's only an hour's flight. Oh, okay. It's only an okay. hour's flight. So yeah. It's not so far away. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, maybe one day. I'm Jane Duncan Rogers. I'm the founder of Before I Go Solutions, a not-for-profit organization that helps people to create good end-of-life plans. And I'm the author of Before I Go, The Essential Guide to Creating a Good End-of-Life Plan. These are further reflections. Welcome to episode 19 of Further Reflections. I'm your host, Mark A. This episode is being released on August 5th, 2018, 
and it's the first podcast episode in August. The guest on this podcast is Jane Duncan Rogers. You, a lot of my guests are based in the Ottawa, Canada area, and that's because that's where I live, and I'm trying to get more of a local flavor, get people that maybe don't do podcasts that often, but uh, have interesting things to say. I try to keep involved in the local, so to speak, uh, community here in Ottawa, and I've even got more involved in my local area recently. Jane Duncan Rogers lives in Scotland, in uh, northern Scotland, I believe. She lives near to the Findhorn Foundation in Scotland, which is a kind of an eco-community, I guess, spiritual community, and she'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Jane came to my attention because I had interviewed someone and got on his publisher's mailing list, and they sent me some books without really consulting me. They sent me several books, books that maybe hadn't been released yet or were about to be released. And I guess the idea is that I interview people. So I've sent out a couple of emails, and Jane agreed to an interview. Her book is titled Before I Go, The Essential Guide to Creating a Good End-of-Life Plan. And I'll read from the back of the book just to give you a flavor of what it's about. I wish I had known what they wanted. Too often a person's wishes for end-of-life care and for after they have gone have not been recorded and leave their loved ones guessing. With this valuable guide, you can now begin to document this for yourself so your relatives will be able to honor your wishes more easily, saving them unnecessary stress and upset at a potentially intense time. Before I Go addresses the emotional, spiritual, and practical aspects of of end-of-life planning to help you make well-informed decisions about your end-of-life care and prepare well for your death. Jane Duncan Rogers guides you with equanimity, care, and humor through subjects such as how to have a conversation about dying, the impact of grief on relatives responsible for estate matters, and DIY funerals and what that entails. She states clearly what you need to have in place to ensure the best end of life possible, helps you identify your values and beliefs in this area, and demonstrates which actions you need to take and when. With a full resource pack of essential information available to you, including guiding questions, exercises, and recording tools, as well as downloadable worksheets and supportive online courses, decision-making will be made much easier and you will find relief and peace of mind knowing you have taken care of outstanding matters. You can update your wishes at any time and feel confident that if anything happens to you suddenly, you and your family will be as well prepared as possible to deal with it. With your end of life wishes clearly defined, you gain the freedom to continue living your life to the fullest, knowing the difficult decisions have been handled. So that's kind of a gist of the book. Uh, Jane tells us how she was inspired to write this book. She'd uh, written another book called Gifted by Grief, which was associated with her husband Philip's death. And when she'd written that book, people had reached out for her, uh, I think about a chapter where she talked about uh, maybe writing down his wishes before he passed away. And that was maybe the most, I don't know, most popular, I suppose, chapter to some people. And uh, she was inspired to several years later, to write this book. Um, It's an interesting subject. It's very practical, but there is sort of more metaphysical aspects about, you know, what is death, what is a a body, 
who am I, things like that. We do discuss those things. In a way, those things are of more interest to me than this practical things, although this book actually get, made me think about kind of how ill-prepared I am for my own death if something should happen recently. I'm uh, 37 years old, so, you know, maybe it's not likely that I'm to die soon, but, you know, maybe it would be nice to have some kind of uh, wishes uh, fulfilled after, after if I did die. So this book is accessible to people of any age, not just the elderly or people that are sick um, or near death, but uh, even young people could benefit from this book. There's a lot of practical examples. She has a website, Before I Go Solutions, which is, uh, the book is sort of based around that website. And there are things you can do. There's a quiz there, how prepared you are for death, things like that. And uh, there's a lot of personal examples in the book and uh, it's quite an interesting book. So the interview runs for about 26 minutes. And I hope you enjoy it. I have a potential interview for the next episode of the podcast, but nothing's been recorded yet. Uh, hopefully that interview comes to fruition. It'll be uh, scheduled to be recorded before the next episode comes out. But if that doesn't work out, I've been, I've mentioned before, I've been reading the books of Paolo Cohilo, and I've read six now. And that's probably enough for a... Uh, 40-minute uh, podcast. I've recorded my thoughts about each book. They run from maybe six to eight minutes on, on each book. So that's a good 40 to 50 minutes. Might even be longer than some of the podcasts I do. But uh, hopefully if the interview doesn't pan out in the next uh, couple of weeks, then you'll be hearing that. If not, I'll probably put that out after the uh, next episode. And uh, if the other episode does come out, I might give a little teaser on that. But uh, because it's not coming out, definitely next time uh, I won't do that here. If you're interested in the subject of death, I would invite you to check out something I watched maybe six months ago. It's uh, The Great Courses, Death, Dying, and the Afterlife, Lessons from Rural Cultures. And this goes more into, uh, we talk a bit in the interview about cultural uh, kind of... Uh, I don't know how different cultures approach death, but we don't go into too much detail. Maybe death is kind of a taboo thing in Western culture, and we discuss that. But this kind of examines different faith traditions, different cultures. And um, the lecturer, Mark Berkson, is quite interesting. I watched this, yeah, maybe six months ago. There's 24 lectures on different aspects of death, including um, things like understanding and coping with grief, death and hope in Christianity, uh, death and syncretism in China, capital punishment, the pursuit of immortality, and more. So if you can find a way to watch that, then uh, do go ahead. In uh, I watched it through Hoopla, which is a streaming service through the public library where I live. But uh, now Great Courses has something called Great Courses Plus, which you can sign up for. And I believe that must be there. You can stream unlimited amount of Great Courses for a monthly fee. It's kind of like a Netflix streaming service. So hopefully that's of interest. And uh, I won't keep you too much longer here. I'll just pass you over for about 26 minutes to my interview with Jane Duncan Rogers. And we'll catch you next time.
Okay, so we're joined by Jane Duncan Rogers on the podcast today. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Jane. Hi, good to be here. So I guess I usually ask people to introduce themselves to start. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you do, maybe. And then we can sure. delve into your book a bit and other things, your websites and stuff. So six years ago, in 2011, my husband died and I could never have imagined that I would have ended up doing what I'm doing now, which is helping people to create good end of life plans. And it would have, it was just impossible to believe. He had been ill with cancer and I, having always been a writer, I knew that I would write about this major experience in my life, obviously, and I did. And sure enough, in 2015, my memoir, Gifted by Grief, was published. And it was readers' reactions to that that have fueled where I'm going now and also the latest book. Because I had written a chapter about the questions that I asked Philip before he died. And they were really practical ones, like um, what kind of coffin do you want? And how do you want your body to be dressed? Is there anything that is precious to you, not very valuable, but precious, that you would want to give to people? These are not easy questions to ask someone, I tell you, when um, that you know they're going to be dying you know, in, in a few months. But he did answer them and we actually had an amazing time doing it. It really was quite incredible. We'd been good at doing projects together and this felt like it was um, one of our last projects at the time. We didn't know it was going to be the last one, but it was. Anyway, I wrote about that and people responded to that chapter in the book and lots of people said to me, I need to answer these questions too. And eventually I responded to that and that has ended up in me, in me find, founding the not-for-profit Before I Go Solutions. We offer courses and, um, courses and products to help people create good end-of-life plans. And that's why I'm here today, really, because I have a new book coming out, Before I Go, The Essential Guide to Creating a Good End-of-Life Plan. And we can touch on that book a bit more, but okay. uh, why don't you... Because the listeners in my podcast, a lot of them are in Ottawa, Canada, or maybe in Canada. So kind of situate yourself for the listeners. Tell us where you are. I know you're in Scotland, I believe, and you're yeah. associated with Fintorn as well. So you That's can right. talk about yes. those things if you want for a minute. Okay. Yes, I live in the north of Scotland, very near to the Fintorn Foundation. In fact, I'm an associate member of the Fintorn Foundation, which is a spiritual community, an eco-village and a learning establishment. Uh, has been around for about 55 years now. When I moved here, which was maybe 11 years ago, I knew that the psychotherapy and coaching work that I had been doing, I would need to put that online because there's not very many people that live here. <laughs> compared to a city anyway and so I that's when I started doing online work yes I have I work with people from all over the world and um, and quite a lot of people actually a lot of people from both America and Canada so very happy to be talking to people particularly in Canada today you, you describe death as the elephant in the room I think it's Ellie the elephant so yeah tell us why death is maybe so taboo or at least in Western culture, maybe talk a bit about it, maybe. Yeah, I think it is, it is, it's so much of a taboo that if you mention what I call the D word, 
there will be probably a pause in the conversation. In fact, often when I say what I do, there is silence as everybody digests the idea that I've managed to mention the D word or even end of life. It's not generally speaking talked about. I think that's because of two main things. One, which is the medicalization of death, i.e. with the hospitals, with doctors and nurses, with the growth of medicine. The way that we used to deal with our dead, which was from home, which was tending to our de the dead bodies in our family, ourselves, that's been taken over by the medical profession, understandably, because a lot of people now die in hospital. And we do need their help in many ways, but not always. But it's become an assumption that the doctors, the nurses will take care of things in the same way that it's become an assumption that funeral directors or undertakers will take care of things. And that that is the thing that we need to do when somebody dies. And a lot of my work actually is educating people that it doesn't have to be like that. That might be your choice. And obviously if you're in hospital, you're going to be very grateful for the, the, uh, the medics. But if you're at home, you can stay at home quite possibly. You can be looked after in your own home quite possibly. And once you have died, your body can stay at home. It doesn't actually need to involve a funeral director very often. It varies slightly from state to state and from country to country. So you need to check on your own um, country's laws. But if we don't understand that this is actually a choice, then we have given our, well, I was going to say we have given our lives away, but actually we give away our dead bodies and our lives to those professions. And I'm really on a mission to say it doesn't have to be like that if you don't want it to be. So that's one aspect, but is, is there other other aspect? That's medicalization. But I mean, it seems yeah. like people don't want to talk about death or something like this. It's just well, the result of that is that people are scared. People scared. are scared of it. Yeah. And we're scared of touching dead bodies. Even people sometimes in the profession are, don't have enough information about what goes on in a body that has died. And so they need more education about that. And of course you would be scared if you haven't been around that kind of thing, it would be normal. In the past, that wasn't the case. But not just uh, dead bodies, but like death in general is a kind of a taboo subject, right? Death yes. encompasses a lot of things maybe, right? Yeah, it does. It's um, it, it bring it's about loss. It brings together. It brings endings that we perhaps don't want to face up to. It brings us face to face with the fact that we might have regrets that maybe we haven't lived life fully in the way that we wanted to, which is why I say that it's a good idea to talk about it, because that's one opportunity you then have, which is to address that before before you die, make sure that you're living the life that you really want right now. Maybe other, uh, this is kind of, is this kind of a Western thing? I, I've heard arguments that it's more of a Western taboo about death is more of a Western thing. And like maybe other cultures it's looked at differently. I don't know if you have yeah. any experience of other cultures and death. I, I, I saw you went to India. You've been to India at some point, but I have, from the yeah. book, but I don't know about anywhere else, but. It is primarily Western culture, yes. And even within that, some countries are a bit different. So, for example, in Ireland, there is, although it's not quite as it was, there is more attention to the old way of doing things there. But yes, other countries are different. They do have different cultures. Certainly in India, it's much more in your face, if you like. 
it's normal there to burn bodies on a funeral pyre and for people to be around and for the family to take part in that um, the process of that. Um, the only other personal experience I have of a different country was in Bali in Asia, where uh, as, a, as a tourist, this was many years ago, I happened to be in a village when a funeral procession was taking place, which was full of uh, colours and uh, music and a procession following a, um, uh, it, it was a, some kind of, um, it wasn't a cart, it was more like a, a sort of carrying thing, carrying procession of this body encased in a beautifully decorated, um, I don't know what you would call it, case of some kind. And as a tourist, I was invited to go along. It was amazing just to be part of that end of life. So different countries definitely do it in different ways. And um, I personally haven't, I haven't done any research on that, but yes, it is mostly Western, where we have the Western society where we have a problem. Tell us something about grief and what that looks like maybe to you. Grief, yes. Well, I thought I knew a bit about grief because I had studied it professionally, and but nothing had prepared me for how I would feel after Philip died. I was really taken aback at how intense everything felt, how pointless life seemed to me to be. It wasn't that I wanted to die, it, but I couldn't see any point in being alive without him there. The sense of shock went on for ages. I felt also very angry from time to time. In fact, I would say that every single emotion that you can imagine was there in various different degrees on various different days. So it really was, um, I felt like I was being tossed and turned by this. And the only thing that I was able to do was go with it. And I knew as a, as a counsellor, I knew that the best thing to do was to allow the feelings to be there and not try and not have them, which meant that I had to feel them. And that was painful to put it mildly. What I didn't realize was, okay, so one thing that was really worked for me was writing down my feelings in a journal. Actually, it wasn't really writing, it was scribbling with great big letters and a lot of swear words sometimes. And I know that it helped because in a, a year or so later, I had a look at those journals and I could see that I had moved forward. I could see that the intensity of the pain a year on wasn't as much as it had been because, and I'd forgotten, I had forgotten how intensely painful it was. But the thing about grief that I learned is that people experience it in all different kinds of ways and you can't say in advance what that's going to be like. So if you know someone who's grieving, it's really important to be accepting of whatever it is that they're going through. And I know Philip's death touched you very much, but you must have had other experiences of death uh, before that in your life, obviously. So was there... Yeah, funnily enough, reflect? not that many, though. Funnily enough, not that many. Um, I had my... When I was about 25, my boss had been killed in a, in a car accident, and that was pretty devastating. And the thing that I most remember about that, though, was that that night at home, the pain that I had in my body down my legs was excruciating. 
and I discovered later that he'd been in a car accident, he'd been trapped, he'd been killed on the spot. Was I picking up his pain in his legs? I have no idea what was going on there, but that was my first introduction to understanding the weird ways, the unusual ways in which grief can show up. And we'll circle back to the book, and uh, mm -hmm. it's talking about end-of-life plans. And one of the things you ask in the book is, uh, why bother? So let's start with that, maybe. <laughs> yeah, why bother? Well, actually, quite a lot of people say that because they say, why bother? I'm going to be dead. It won't matter to me, um, which is true. Of course it's true. But really what you're doing when you create a good end-of-life plan is you are giving your family and friends a great gift. And that means it's a very selfless gift because you are not going to be around to see how much they appreciate it. But it's, it's one of these things where you don't realize, you don't know how important it is until you've been on the receiving end of someone who has died that you're responsible for taking care of the fact that they have died and the rest of the remnants, if you like, of their life. And you realize what an enormous amount of stuff there is to take care of. And that's not just the administrative stuff, it's the actual stuff that they had in their house, but it's also all the legal things as well. It, it does take quite a lot of time and effort and money to get through that. That's on top of you grieving, right? So if somebody has organized in advance, it makes it much easier from an administrative point of view. It, it might not mean that you feel your loss any less keenly, but you won't have to be thinking about things like, I'm sure there's a will somewhere. I wonder where it is. Or I wonder what he wanted. I wonder what she wanted. You know, nobody ever said anything to me about what she wanted or the sort of thing that they might want in their funeral. These are, these are decision-making is not one of the easiest things to do when you're grieving. So the more that we can do now by having made the decisions while we're alive and before it's really needed, the better. So you mentioned having a will there, and that, that's quite a lot of uh, some of the book, you talk a lot about that. So tell us why that's especially maybe important. Well, basically, if you don't have a will, then whatever it is that you have left, whether it's a little or a lot, will have to go through the lawyers in order to be sorted out. Well, we all know what it's like taking things through lawyers. It takes a lot of time. And it costs a lot of money at a time when the family is going to be grieving or the friends are going to be grieving you don't need that extra hassle for the sake of um putting down now what it is that you know that you want to have happen and in some places you can do that for free over the internet or you can go to your favorite charity and find out if they have a will writing service they often do have in in exchange for a donation and sometimes you don't even have to make a donation it's it's left as a choice up to you so yeah saving time and money and expense but also it saves family arguments that's really important and we can see that with remember when prince died and he didn't have a will it was really unusual that because somebody with such a lot of uh, personal wealth and business wealth hadn't taken care of things. Now, that's going to take years to get sorted out properly. The family won't be benefiting until that's sorted out. And it will cost probably millions. And that kind of, I know you sort of talk about, you know, people's 
I guess not why bother, but some people are young and they think they don't need a will because they're young kind of thing. But mm -hmm. you would argue that you need a will even when you're young, right? Cause... Yeah, I do. And, you know, I was like that too when I was young. I was, I, I, it, you know, it didn't occur to me that I could possibly die. It just, it just wasn't in my frame of reference. Looking back now, of course, I can see that that wasn't very responsible because sometimes young people do die too, unfortunately. It's unlikely to happen, but it does happen. And it's going to make things a lot easier again for parents or whoever it is to if things are in place beforehand. It just means that the hassle, the administrative hassle around sorting out somebody's, the leftovers of somebody's life, if you like, is lessened considerably. So and the thing is with a will, everybody knows that you need to have one. The kind of thing, oh yeah. Or if you don't have hardly any money, you think you don't need to have one. But even so, I would say it's still a good idea. The question really is, well, how do we get people to do it? And actually it is made much easier when you do it with somebody else. Now that could be a friend. It could be somebody in your family where you agree to do something together, where you hold each other accountable. You take it baby step by baby step. Or it could be that you use uh, my book to help prompt you. Or, or join a course or all sorts of different ways. It doesn't really matter which way, so long as you get it done. <laughs> I think a lot of people know at least generally what a will is, but uh, you also talk about advanced directives and maybe people don't are not as familiar about that, but that's no. important. You spend a lot of time on that too. So tell yeah. us about that and what that is and why it's important. And it, okay, an advanced directive, also known as an advanced decision or an advanced healthcare directive or anything along that lines, it's, it's the same thing as a living will. Some people will remember those, that phrase better. It is the document that you create, which in some places is a legal document, but you create it and it states the kind of treatment that you don't want to have towards the end of your life. Now, this is particularly important as we live longer, but not in necessarily very good health. Because just imagine if you are somebody who has a uh, life-threatening illness, or you feel that you're just coming towards the end of your life, and the quality of your life is not great anymore. Our medical professionals have been trained naturally to keep people alive, but it's almost at all costs. So what we're talking about here is people, when they're healthy, being able to consider what it is that they might want if they were incapacitated and couldn't make their own decisions for themselves so that somebody else would have to decide for them. So, for example, if you thought that for whatever reason that you wouldn't want to receive, it, that you wouldn't want to be resuscitated, or that for whatever reason that you wouldn't want to receive antibiotics or um, uh, feeding by tube in hospital, that's the kind of thing that you can put down on your form, which that makes it sound really easy, but actually it takes quite a process to think through and become clear about the sort of thing that you might want, as well as knowing that it might change as you move through your life. And uh, in the book, you get a little bit metaphysical, I would say. You ask, what is a body and who am I? So what do you have yeah. to say about those things, maybe? <laughs> Yes. Well, my take on that is that it's a lot easier to do this practical stuff, if you like, if 
you have a belief that says that who you are is much more than a body. Because if who you are is more than a body, i.e. a soul or a spirit or, or life energy or um, whatever it is that you want to call it, it doesn't really matter, then at least intellectually, you can know that the body may die, but who you really are doesn't. Now, you might not, of course, know yourself as we do now because we have a body. And from many, uh, from much research done, there is a question mark as to what actually happens when you don't have a body anymore. But there's plenty of people who've had near-death experiences who will say anecdotally that there is, uh, there is, I could say, life after death. It's not life in a body, but there is still life. It's just in a different form. And I've found with the people that I've worked with that when people have this kind of, or are at least are open to this kind of understanding in whatever language they use, then it makes it easier to remove yourself from the idea that your body is going to die and that you have to take care of some of the practical aspects of that. Okay. And in, throughout the book, I, what I like about it is uh, at each chapter, I think you have a little quote about death from different yeah. uh, people. So do you have any favorites or tell us how you kind of accumulated those quotes and things like that? <laughs> you know, I don't really have a favorite because the trouble was when I started looking for them, which I just Googled online, I found loads that I loved. So my challenge was narrowing them down to one that might be appropriate for that particular chapter or that said something that I particularly liked. So all the ones that are in there now are all my favorites, I would say. Yeah. I noticed okay. one thing I want to ask you about is I think in your TED talk, you said uh, Philip uh, was watching Countdown near the end and it was a kind of message. And you said it's common that people maybe give uh, yeah. certain kind of messages near the end. So. Tell us a bit about that, maybe. I had read from many years ago, just in my studies, and because I'm interested, I had read about uh, the kinds of metaphor, metaphorical language that people use when they're coming near to the end of their life. And it's very often a message that only a nearest and near, dearest person would understand. And because I, I knew about this, I was aware in what appeared to be Philip's last days that, that that might happen. So my antennae were out, if you like. And I wasn't there when he actually had this conversation. That was with a friend. But when she told me it, I... Now, she didn't know the meaning of it, right? But I knew, because she'd never heard of Countdown my, uh, program before, but when I heard it, I just knew it, that he was telling me he was counting down. And to know that he knew that this was happening and that he was giving me this message, albeit maybe unconsciously, that was incredibly comforting to me at the time, incredibly comforting. So I'm, I'm kind of spreading the word about that because lots of people don't know that that's what happens. And if you don't know it, you, you might just say to in that case you might just have said to him oh sorry we can't find the program and it would have been missed that moment would have been missed so yeah i say that if you're with somebody who is coming towards the end of their life listen out with different ears for 
the kinds of things they may be telling you in a different kind of language. And we'll wrap up in a sec, but you wanted to talk about a quiz you have on one of your websites. So why don't you promote your websites a little bit and tell people where they can find you and okay. uh, anything else you want to say at the end here. Okay, so I can be found at beforeigosolutions.com. There's lots of different things on that site, including my TEDx talk. But also on the homepage, there is a quiz, which you can do called how there is a quiz to help you find out how well prepared you are for your own end of life. It's just 10 questions. It takes a couple of minutes, if that. And you and it's very simple. And you'll be able to understand from there the types of things that you need to take care of, some of which are really detailed, but actually make a huge difference. And that will help you to take the next step forward in terms of where you need to go with your own end of life preparations. So tell us maybe when the book is coming out, where they can get the book and maybe what's next for you right now. Yeah, the book is already out in uh, North America and it's coming out in the UK on the 9th of August. And you can get it uh, on Amazon, of course, but also in Barnes and Noble and um, from Inner Traditions, the publisher, innertraditions.com. And also your good, all local bookshops will be able to get it for you, no problem at all, if they don't have it in. Okay. Are you doing any promotion of the book right now, like talks or anything? Or? I am, but not outside of the UK. It's okay. If you want to, maybe someone <laughs> okay. listening might, you know, yeah. might be listening in the UK. It's possible. Okay. So the I have a local launch uh, on the 15th of August up in Forest in the north of Scotland. So if you're up there at all, you're very welcome to come along. The details are on the website. And I have various other different speaking engagements set up and more to come as well. So the, the best thing to do really is to visit my site, do the quiz, in which case you'll be invited to be on the mailing list or just be on the mailing list. Um, and uh, that way you will get regular information or you can go to Facebook and on Facebook I have a before I go end of life conversations private group that you can join you can request to join excellent thank you so much okay. really appreciate it thank you well that does it for another episode just a reminder the website for this podcast is furtherreflections.net there you can find the episode archive you can find more about myself you can support the podcast and you can see the archive of my previous podcast, Reflections On. Thanks for listening.